you're familiar with this creature as exceedingly persuasive, you can still find those episodes with the lovely Brooke Rogers, who you know and love, here under season one. I'm going to keep the party going here as a legal matter. Do credit to the Who for that name. This feed's now going to be populated with some of my episodes, like this one, but I'm also going to try to add in audio from shows and video discussions with other folks as new episodes on here. For example, did a couple chats recently with the lovely Lila Mensing on Weed Laws. You can check out her show, High Crime. And we have a few installments of a new show with Jackie Zabrowski and Natalie Jean that we have been doing on twitch.tv slash Jackie. But I'm going to see if I can make future video episodes listenable here too. I'm going to get my big girl tech panties on. Anyways, if you found this confusing or want to do everything in one place, you can also watch stuff and listen to stuff on my new website, which is mkzjoybrennan.com. Now, let's throw it over to me. Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Even though I tend to follow these things, there was such a, a combination of bad headlines when you did hear about the case, and uh, you know a moral lack of shock that uh, blubbering <laughs> um, adult white man, but one that was acting like a child would likely be treated like a child. Um, by the criminal justice system. So I didn't pay attention too closely for that reason throughout the trial, but now that it has panned out in largely the way that a lot of us are not surprised it did, although honestly more extremely bad than I was anticipating, but um, like I, I thought they would get him on a lesser charge. Um, we'll get to what the charges were, but, um, so I went back and, and did all the research then this last weekend to see if I could figure out what went wrong, because the other swath of people with whom I tend to agree was shocked. Um, I know that there's a divide, especially with racial related issues that, you know, people of color tend to not be shocked when these things don't favor the side of justice. Um, for better or worse, this case involved um, all white men. So good for all otherwise privileged straight white men to know that apparently when push comes to shove, if you're not a Republican, um, Things still might not go your way, so, but this was a white man on white man related thing. So let's, without further ado, get into the facts. Um, the, the question that I still had, even being unsurprised, and I think a lot of other folks who knew the basics um, and were shocked at the verdict had was, you know, was there something that we were missing? Was there some gross miscarriage of justice? Like, did some mistake happen at some point? What, did we misunderstand what was going on? Like, how did this happen? Um, and ultimately, 
my answer, having gone through everything, is that there was no <laughs> trump card, so to speak. Um, there, There's no, like, one reason, which almost makes it worse, because we collectively are reaping what we've sown over not just, you know, the lifetime of a nation and of the world favoring um, straight white men over pretty much any other demographic group, but also in the last, you know, three decades, two or three decades or so in terms of gun laws, uh, gun control attitudes, and the way we perceive and society, jurors, media, etc., perceive the seriousness of bringing a firearm into a conflict and thus escalating. So, for example, what happened here was uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, because we can, we can just do a, a very, very quick recap of, of everything that happened. So after the killing of an unarmed black man, um, one of a number last year, um, but Jacob Blake was, was the one in question that triggered um, a lot of Black Lives Matter protests in Wisconsin. And, you know, the Trump administration had painted the BLM protesters as Antifa, painted them with the assistance of Fox News as a lot more violent and property destructive than they actually were in practice, and also obviously undermined the legitimacy of the, the cause for protest. So there were a lot of these clashes around the country. The killing of Jacob Blake um, initiated them in Wisconsin, in Kenosha, where this took place. And Kyle Rittenhouse, a an apple-cheeked, I mean, like, I hate to pick on people based on their appearance. I understand it is not a charitable thing to do. I should not condone it. Um, but much like Martin Shkreli, for example, like, there are some faces that you just want to... He was at the time 17 years old. So, um, a, a minor at the time that he did this, it's, it's like a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's like, why did you ever, yeah, you are a child when you're doing this. Why would you ever think that you are equipped to, to be making the decisions and have the, the confidence towards violence that you do? The arrogance of that is really remarkable. And it's, it's an arrogance that I don't think any other demographic group can or does show in terms of wreaking unmitigated havoc with a deadly weapon. But he decided, um, he described himself as like a medic, even though he's not trained as such, he hasn't worked as such, um, obviously was not acting like that. But he said that he wanted to go to Kenosha. I believe he had to cross state lines to go there. But he wanted to go to the site of these protests, um, even though he did not agree with the protests, and prevent property damage. Um, damage that was potential to property that was obviously not his own. Um, and he decided to bring an AR-15 style, uh, it's like a Smith & Wesson assault rifle or something. Um, it's, it's akin to an AR-15. Um, that piece was illegal in and of itself, 
and that charge. <laughs> so the judge in the Rittenhouse trial threw that charge out, which that charge was the only one not related to the taking of life or the shooting of anybody. And so some folks saw it as the best option if the jurors didn't want to, if they bought the whole self-defense thing, didn't want to convict him on, on those grounds, warranted or unwarranted, that they at least could use this weapons charge as a basis to punish him for something. Um, kind of like you heard in, in that OJ theft trial years later that the judge ended up sentencing him to something that was like a, a throwback or that harkened back to the injustice of the Nicole Brown trial. So th that could have been the option. There was this um, weapons charge that I believe, I, I actually don't remember if it was felony or misdemeanor, but it it had to do with a minor possessing a weapon of that style, uh, that you can't have an assault rifle um, as a minor and the prohibition on minors possessing that type of gun was only if it was a short-barreled type of gun. And the, so this is the basis that the judge decided, like used when granting the defense's motion a day before the jury went into deliberation. So the whole trial is done. Day before the jury goes in, the judge grants the defense's motion to throw that charge out based on their argument about the length of the barrel of the gun that Kyle Rittenhouse had. So it it's one of those things that, like, I don't know, in a vacuum, maybe it's right. There, there starts to be a confluence of this can't all be coincidence when it comes to the judge's um, perceived bias towards Kyle Rittenhouse, like pro-Kyle Rittenhouse bias. Um, which, again, though, unfortunately, does not in any one action amount to, like, it's not necessarily incorrect. Um, so what was left, then, for the jury to consider were charges, all felony charges, based on attempted murder or murder, uh, reckless homicide, manslaughter related. I, I don't remember what the actual Wisconsin charges are called because the... The specifics of, of what things are called vary from state to state, but intentional homicide, reckless homicide, they basically were multiple levels of the same thing um, for the two people that Kyle Rittenhouse killed, and then the third one who he shot injured severely, but then recovered to testify actually at trial. So uh, Usually the way that it breaks down the difference between like intentional and reckless is that reckless is not intending for something to happen, but it's a little above negligent in that you are being so, you have so much disregard for safety that you could easily foresee this result from your conduct and having that knowledge, you don't change your course of behavior. And then intentional obviously is, is that you mean to take a life at, but there, I don't think there were any actual murder charges. It was all varying degrees of, of manslaughter, intentional or unintentional. Um, apparently none of those succeeded. The, I guess the last piece of the fact pattern that's worth discussing is, because it will come up at a number of points, is the um, 
the like aggressor status potentially of the victims and I'm going to call them that because it's we'll get to that too um so the three young men who were shot two of whom died there are varying accounts and obviously you have to take a lot with a grain of salt when two of the people who can attest to the circumstances are dead so it's like my word against nobody um as written out but he says First of all, they were in an empty, like, used car lot parking area. So when you talk about defensive property that's not even your own, it's like, what is this, a noble medic? That's, what the fuck are you doing? Um, But that's where the combat occurred. Um, There's security camera footage, and I guess the, the, like, quality of it came into question a couple times, but some of it is documented at at least a significant distance, but one of the young men who died hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard, and so that is on video. Um, Obviously, this is why the attitude towards guns comes into play so much, and attitude collectively about, like, how much we accept their use, but also knowledge of the fact that these are not, it's not like a hammer It's not like something that can cause death, um, but it's designed to cause death. And so it's designed to do a massive amount of damage. And so when you talk about aggressor status, like somebody's hitting with a skateboard versus something that is designed to take a life, and the type of gun too, this isn't like a revolver that he's using, um, that we collectively don't talk about the amount of damage that these these weapons are designed to do because on the one hand it goes without saying obviously that's what they do that's that's what they're there for and that's what distinguishes them from every other thing when people are like yeah well cars kill people yeah but guns are designed to take life that is their primary and really their only purpose is to kill and maim um it's not like a baseball bat that like rats you can use it as a deadly weapon or you know, special forces can kill anybody with a napkin. No, their job is to tear apart innards such that somebody is stopped in their tracks by either death or serious injury. So the fact that this one guy hit him with a skateboard, um, you know, in any inquiry, I'd be hard pressed to say that 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 should never come into play. Obviously, if I were the one and some guy is hitting me with a skateboard, maybe I'll feel threatened. I I don't know about taking a life, let alone shooting three people with intent to take a life to defend a used car lot, but whatever. Um, it does come into play that there was some aggression back and forth. One of the men, the one that survived, was armed. Um, So that is one thing that I didn't really know from the coverage so far, but definitely a a tricky tally to account for, um, that he did have a gun on him, visible. He says that he didn't pull it. Obviously, Rittenhouse says that he saw him reaching for it. Um, That does change the landscape a little bit, and it was almost soothing for me to find that out, because it's like, okay, well, maybe there is a reason that this was perceived by a jury of my peers, of of Rittenhouse's peers, but, you know, regular people, as being something that was semi-reasonable to, um, to fire on folks. 
because uh, a gun isn't a skateboard. So the, yeah, the landscape changes once that's there. But yeah, so that's that. He says he was being chased and felt threatened. Um, the counter to that is a lot of the difference in this story comes from looking at the context, which is tough because any inquiry about something like this is going to be very restricted, especially with the self-defense piece, to what was in everybody's mind and what were the actions taken in the moment of conflict. So there's not a lot of even in a different circumstance and a different case, there isn't a, a ton of room for consideration of why did you go to Kenosha? Why did you bring a deadly weapon? Is that justified? Um, is that in and of itself reckless? Which, you know, um, I don't know how limited the, the prosecution was. I don't know the scope of the inquiry and even if the law doesn't say it, the judge could say it, but it is tough because usually when you're looking at these types of things and homicide too, when you look at like intent of homicide and you're looking at what happened in this hand-to-hand -hand moment, what drove you to do this thing, did this person say this, did this person reach for that? Um, so this is kind of what I mean when I say we're reaping what we've sown as a society in terms of how we view straight white men, the deference that we give them, um, how we view guns in general, and if that changes somebody's status altogether, that they're bringing a gun to a march that they're not attending except to police it. Um, because when you look at each piece of it, nothing is that crazy. Um, and that's, that's what's crazy. So the the hand-to-hand -hand combat piece, the moments before these these young men died and the other one was injured, there is back and forth. So maybe now is a good time to look at self-defense in general and self-defense in Wisconsin, which surprisingly very different um, or a, a variation on the traditional. So usually self-defense, um, and I think in this case as well, involves whether a reasonable person in those circumstances would have felt the immediate risk, like an impending, so not just like, oh, I bet sometime they're going to want to kill me, they said they want me dead, but if you are at an, an immediate risk to your life. So that's why it does make a difference. Things like, you know, if I hit somebody in the face with a book, that's not... Um, Especially if it's me, because there's a this is a very subjective lens that you apply, because self-defense is something that does not deny the fact that there has been a homicide. It's it's just a defense to it. So you're kind of admitting, yes, I took a life, but it was justified. Um, it's an affirmative defense, saying like, yeah, I concede I took a life, but I felt that it was my only option. And so if it's me with a book versus um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson with a book, it's a very different type of analysis. It's a subjective inquiry. So that type of spectrum that we're looking at also changes, like, you can't just have risk of injury. It has to be that you reasonably see the immediate prospect of dying or being seriously injured. And, you know, 
even in the strictest, most consistent legal atmosphere, there's going to be a million var variables that change fact patterns. You're never going to get two cases that are the same. So there's always going to be room for interpretation. Um, but a lot of the differences that you see, even in two states that have the same standard, comes down to um, who's the reasonable man. And this is another way that we're reaping what we've sown. Um, reasonable in this climate can be somebody who uh, is a Trump supporter and believes that the election was stolen, believes that the January 6th insurrection was justified and not treasonous, um, believes that, you know, COVID and Fauci are hoaxes. Um, and this is a reaping what we've sown on, on Facebook in the political world that it is not uncommon for somebody to have that crackpot extremist mindset because it's no longer fringe um, in the same way that it was. I, I think it's not the majority, but it's not crazy. So it can be a reasonable, the reasonable man that we're looking to. Um, that sucks. Um, but the fact is, it's true. So that reasonability then applies to Rittenhouse believed that Antifa was, I don't know, like taking out I don't know what they think, that they want to eat babies and adrenochrome that like, so yeah, that maybe is a reasonable man standard. Um, in, in certain states, there is, so there's some variation within like some of the, the nuance and exceptions. So my understanding is that in all states, but this does call it into question a little bit, but that you can never use defensive property as a reason to use deadly force. Um, even if you're in your home and you're like the castle doctrine because a man's home is his castle, even if you're in your own home, the reason that you get away with more or get away with killing somebody who's robbing the house, for example, is because there's such an implication and no requirement to retreat, that there's so much threat inherent in somebody breaking into your home that you can impute just the act of doing that, even if they're just trying to rob you, to being a threat to your person. Um, you know, equating just them being in your inner sanctum as a threat of deadly force, which is, is fair. I mean, it is, it's different than somebody coming up to you on the street and picking your pocket, you know? But so point being, even when you can kind of make the argument that it's a property-based crime and you're allowed to kill somebody under those circumstances, it's still not the defense of property. And there's this famous case that if you go to law school, it's like your first year of torts where somebody, I think in Arizona, so like shout out to the home state, had a spring-loaded shotgun on an unoccupied lot of, of real property, so land, um, that people kept breaking into and ended up killing or maiming one of the people, one of the youths who used to come onto the property, um, seriously injuring them with this spring-loaded shotgun that was designed to go off when nobody was there. And the ruling was that you can't do that because nobody was occupying the house that he was defending. It was just to keep people off the property. And person versus property 
person is a lot weightier. We care more about people than property, so you can never just use defensive property as an excuse. It sounds like the inquiry here went a different direction. Um, in actuality, I think a lot of people um, saw the circumstances, myself included, um, and it smacked of he went there with the intention of, of defending property, which he did. Um, but the fact is that once this hand-to-hand -hand combat started, it really did change the focus of, of the exploration undertaken by the court to threat from a person. Because um, frankly, if he had made the argument about defending property, it's not his property that he ever could have argued defending because it, it was somebody else's used car lot. He wasn't from there. He was from out of state. You can't even kind of argue that. But it is kind of a scary implication because a lot of folks probably have the same impression that a lot of us did, which is that this is condoning defense of property with deadly force, even if it's not your property. So whether or not those people get away with it, whether or not this holding in this case affects that, because obviously it's only precedent in Wisconsin, now that's an impression that's out there as a thing, and once somebody's dead, you can't really go back and clarify the law. So it's a scary, potentially wrong takeaway, but that when lines are this fucked up and blurry, you risk that. Oh, there's, yeah, some states have this right or requirement of retreating to use the self-defense um, mitigation factor, um, affirmative defense, where you not only can't be the aggressor, so you can't have started the fight, but you also have to try to get away um, and have no option but to fight. So, like, somebody's coming at you with a sword and you happen to have one in your waistband and you didn't start the sword fight and then you're on a pier and you're backed up and you're going to fall off the pier and so you have to stab them. It's like, I had no option of retreating. Running away wasn't an option. I had to kill them. Some states don't have that, so it's it's kind of inching closer to stand your ground, um, where if somebody comes at you, you have every right then, like, now the door's open, I'm going to come back at you with deadly force, even if I could just as easily run away and get away, um, and could feasibly see that option. Um, Wisconsin goes a step further in their self-defense laws in that you in some circumstances, can actually be the aggressor. So start the fight, the altercation, the argument, whatever whatever led to the ultimately fatal altercation arising. Um, you could have initiated it. You can be the aggressor and you can still, in some circumstances, successfully invoke self-defense, which to me is, is really remarkable. Um, I've, yeah, especially when... Um, there's such a disparity of weapons, and obviously it does complicate that, that one of the victims was armed as well, but what are you going to do? This is what happens when guns are everywhere. Also, really debunks the whole good guy with a gun. I don't know which one. It's Like, both sides can, can have the good guy with the gun argument, and obviously it doesn't work. Um, Rittenhouse didn't really prevent anything... He didn't stop the protest. He left one alive, so rats. Um, and if you're on the side of the BLM protesters, or I don't know that that movement would want to claim the random armed guy, but 
he brought a gun too, and that didn't save him or the other guys. So it's like, obviously it just ends up in more violence. But, um, so Wisconsin self-defense law. So typically there's, there's this burden in a criminal trial. So let's look at just like straight up murder because it's easy. Um, it's innocent until proven guilty. So it means that the burden is on the prosecution to show beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera, et cetera. When you have a criminal charge like murder and you're raising an affirmative defense like self-defense saying like, yes, I did take that life, but it was okay because of this reason, usually, and understandably so, the burden then shifts. So um, you're conceding that you took the life. Now the burden shifts to the defense to show that self-defense was indeed why you took that life. Um, and to explain the circumstances and et cetera, et cetera. But now that the defense is kind of countering with this affirmative reason for doing the thing that we're conceding we did, um, it becomes their responsibility to show that. In Wisconsin, for whatever reason, which is weird when you think of how pro-prosecution courts and the criminal justice system tend to be, um, the prosecution has the burden. Maybe it's a pro-gun thing that for circumstances just like this one. But the prosecution not only has the burden to show, um, like every criminal court in America, that somebody is guilty of murder, they also have to show that self-defense didn't happen um, and that somebody wasn't acting in self-defense if they choose to plead it. So I guess Kyle Rittenhouse is essentially presumed to have acted in self-defense until or unless prosecution can rebut that, which doesn't seem fair, um, at least in this circumstance, which is, you know, with so many criminal justice issues, we have to consider that these laws are applied to everybody on all sides of everybody's consciousness. Um, so I heard women in jail for killing their abusers um, who were obviously denied self-defense invoked in a number of arguments where it's like they would like to have a word as they rot in prison for killing people who were legitimately um, injuring them and putting them at risk of death. That this kind of law, I guess, would favor that type of victim. Um, but I have a weird feeling that Wisconsin didn't do it for that reason. But um, it certainly is a, it's a pro-gun type of thing, because if you pull your gun and kill somebody, um, then somehow the state has a burden instead of you. You no longer have, have the burden of proving that, like, yes, I was in fear for my life. The state has to prove that you weren't. So that's a, a big weird thing. Um, and anybody who lives in Wisconsin, I would push them to... Uh, like, get that changed, because <laughs> it's a relatively recent law, like, within the last couple years. I don't know how many other states do it. I haven't heard of, of a scheme like that before, but it's a huge piece of, of why this happened. Let's see. Oh, oh, geez. So, there's, there's a, a tricky piece that I don't know if it actually came in at trial. I know that the defense tried to get it admitted. I don't know what the actual ruling was, but one of the victims, one of the ones who died, was um, served prison time for molesting kids in Arizona also. So we're really coming out on top of these news stories. 
Um, yikes. Uh, if the jury did hear that, I could see it coloring a bit. You know, you got this blubbering child. You know, he looks very young. He looks like a pig boy. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's not a nice thing to say. He does, though. Um, and even though for many of us it was a disgusting display and laughable, um, it probably, if you were inclined to believe him, it might have been sincere, too. Like, he may have panicked. He clearly does not have the maturity to be handling firearms, which is why the law existed, but, um, whatever. So if you're weighing that against, um, a victim who is an older man who actually was convicted and served time for, um, I think one of the counts was child rape. It, like, it wasn't a mild, you know, certain things go on the sex offense list and you're like, oh, but it was just peeing within whatever feet of a playground. No, it was, it was bad. So, and there was at least an attempt by the defense to get that in. I don't know if it succeeded. I could see something like that, um, you know, raising a little bit of an issue. Other things that came up that, you know, again, individually, don't know that any of them decided anything or could be said to uh, be a gross miscarriage, but there are a lot of evidentiary calls that are always going to make a difference. Um, there are limits on character evidence and what they call prior bad acts um, coming in as evidence for both the prosecution and the defense. So prior, oh, and then hearsay limits too on prior comments and things like that. There are all sorts of evidentiary rules for why and how and what you can bring in. So obviously we all who've been watching the news know that Kyle Rittenhouse had a past of saying that he wishes he had his AR-15 at CVS to kill the looters. Um, or, it, you know, it's very nice that he said he was a medic in, in training without training and wasn't enrolled anywhere. Um, but we also have comments that he was going to shoot anybody who tried to destroy property, which <laughs> is kind of inherently, if if the medical profession is do no harm, it's it's at odds. They're literally mutually exclusive. Um, oh, and ironically, the victim who survived was a medic, was a literal trained, licensed medic who was there to provide medic skills. Uh, he was also the one who was armed, so it, it's... That piece of person-on-person -person character stuff is tricky, um, but we don't know, I don't know at least, I don't know that it has been released to the public, what the jury actually knew and what they didn't, and what they were allowed to consider and what they weren't. Um, things like political affiliation, it's a tough argument to get those brought in as relevance. Um, while I do think in this case that a lot of it informed intent in a way that is, like, would transcend the normal evidentiary bar on bringing certain things in, it's not just like, well, he said a bad thing once, so he must have been doing a bad thing now. It really does make a difference if you believe Trump and you believe Antifa is out to kill people, that that, that rises to a level of relevance. Um, even though I think that is distinct, um, you can see why certain evidentiary bars exist. Because you flip it the other way, you wouldn't want someone saying, you know, oh, well, 
they said something socialist on Facebook once, so they probably love Antifa, and all of a sudden if you have a jury that's composed that way, and a judge who has those sympathies, you know, you got to picture these standards applied in every circumstance. All that said, again, I do think that this rises above just like, oh, well, they're a member of a party, so they must have done X. Uh, I do think it was probably relevant on Rittenhouse's side. But who knows what the jury knew and saw. Um, the the rulings that we do know about that are questionable, um, there's the, the throwing out of the gun charge, which I really, especially when it seemed to come down to something so minute and questionable that, you know, you really couldn't fault a judge for letting the jury consider the charge when it comes down to a question of like 16 versus 17 inches um, right before jury deliberations. Obviously, that's not a cut and dried issue. When in doubt, I say throw it to the jury. Um, so that's a, that, yeah, that's a judge ruling that is questionable. It's not so obviously wrong, unfortunately. The biggest one that I can picture, again, not rising to the level, I don't think, of so determinative of the outcome that it could be basis for um, an appeal and an overturning on appeal. Maybe you could get away with appeal, we'll see. Um, is the ruling on victims as a word that could be used? Um, I thought that was a super, super weird thing it, and really uncommon. I mean, boy. Um, so the, the judge, if you're not familiar, ruled that the victims, the people killed or maimed by Kyle Rittenhouse, could not be referred to as victims in the trial. And this is honestly a separate issue, like a second distinct and also bad <laughs> issue. Um, instead ruled that they can be called looters, rioters, and arsonists. So looking at victims first, First of all, it's totally normal for people to be called victims in a criminal trial. Um, especially you're adding to that that this is one where self-defense is being pleaded. So they're conceding the fact of taking life. They are conceding the fact that violence has been wrought upon these people by, this, by the defendant. Um, so that to me, it wasn't even an issue that they were victims. Um, Second of all, it's not uncommon. Third, you hear that, like, that word doesn't even imply agency. You hear the word victims used um, after, like, a forest fire. It's like, oh, there were three victims of the forest fire when it reached this residential area. Um, so it doesn't, it's not even a word that implies that this person was responsible. It just means that, you know, <laughs> they received gunshots and died. Um, we happen to know who fired the gunshots, so, but the fact is that they were injured and died, or injured and, you know, suffered, so I don't even understand where you can make the argument there, um, but was it something so significant that it changed how the jury perceived the whole trial, and otherwise they would have ruled differently? You probably have a lot of trouble making that argument, so in terms of changing the result, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but then the second piece of that being that they were allowed to call them rioters, arsonists, looters, um, 
I mean, there's a question there of, of if there's even evidence of things like arson and looting on behalf of the victims, of the people who died. But even if you are saying that, there is an inherent bad, violent, criminal quality to those words. Um, so that, I, I think, implies more than victim does in the other direction. So that's really weird to me. Um, either way, of what I know of the judge's rulings, somewhat unfortunately, there's even if there was bias, I don't know that you can prove that it was outcome determinative. So the best I could say is something like, you know, the judge in the Brock Turner case was subsequently unseated. Um, I don't know if that was impeachment or forced retirement or what, but like maybe it's time for people to look into this guy for future cases, but um, I don't know that any of his faults were big enough to say, like, this is why this happened. I don't think that's the case. Um, so a couple things. Um, I'll renew here while we're still talking about personnel impact. Do jury duty. If you ever are called for jury duty, this is a, a great context to remind folks to do it because we need reasonable people. Um, I've heard some people, some lawyers, say that it's not a jury of your peers, it's a jury of people who are too dumb to get out of jury duty. Let's please change that. The fact is that every case, this one included, comes down, if it's a jury trial, to who those 12 people, or different numbers in different contexts, who they are and what they think of the arguments being made. We have that question in the Ahmaud Arbery case, which um, hopefully is not decided yet by the time I release this, but will be another reflection on self-defense and race relations and things like that. Um, but there's only one black person on that jury. And obviously it's, it's a case heavy with race implications. So I'll just say that I know it sucks. It's like the fact that we all should research judicial um, nominees and uh, candidates when it's judicial elections. We should research local propositions and local laws, uh, state laws like the one that changed the self-defense standard. It sucks, I know. And I remember the first time I researched judicial candidates, like texting my dad about it, all excited to like get kudos for researching it. And in my head thinking like, oh my God, I'm never going to do that again because it's who the hell like, has time for this? But then I did it next time because I was like, well, I did it last time, so now I have to keep up appearances, and now it's something that I do. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you see the stakes now of what happens when things make it under the radar. So do jury duty, research candidates, whatever. Um, Last thing I'll say, which goes without saying, but let's crystallize it so that it is said out loud, is the impact of identity and demographic factors in how people's opinions do shake out. So even if it isn't a weird ruling or a weird law, and I think there were, it was a perfect storm of a lot of those things here, but nothing too glaring, um, ultimately it comes down to the biases that a reasonable or unreasonable jury takes into every room. So I think there's a race piece and there's a gender piece. Um, and the clearest way to say that is that I don't think any other demographic composition of a defendant could have gotten the kind of treatment that Kyle Rittenhouse did. Um, and 
I would add as an ancillary thing, political affiliation, because like I said up top, um, they were white men that were killed too. They just happened to be Democrats. So apparently when push comes to shove, we favor the conservative straight white man um, over the liberal or non-conservative. I mean, reiterating the the women killing their abusers application of self-defense, which uh, much more infrequently favors and gives deference to the defendant um, taking life. Uh, obviously we know, and it has been said many times over, that a black man doing the exact same thing would not have gotten the kind of deference that Kyle Rittenhouse got from the day of the incident through to the exoneration because Kyle Rittenhouse also got to like go home and turn himself in on his own schedule. Uh, I think initially he wanted to just not tell anybody and then his mommy told him that he should turn himself in and he got to do that uh, with the luxury of time and kind treatment from law enforcement. Um, yeah, a, a blubbering adult man, if it were a blubbering adult woman, would not be called a child, um, would not be pitied, and if it were an adult man who was black, or if it were even a child who was black, um, they would be called adult, they wouldn't be given the like, oh, they're their little guy. Uh, granted, very few folks have the kind of diapery pig face. He has a uniquely babyish face. But yeah, so identity factors and political affiliation all definitely play into this. And I don't know how we tackle that because it, though there are a lot of legal pieces and I think gun control is the easiest legal piece to tackle as a country at large because Obviously, this case, um, each case, unless it's like precedent determinative and a facial challenge of a law on a scale like the Supreme Court, it really is just about the facts of that case, which makes it, th that can be a source of, of comfort because ultimately this case was not about society at large. It wasn't about how the law will be applied to any other people except maybe people in Wisconsin. Um, it was about the facts of this case, and they weren't as, um, easy as I had assumed they weren't in Rittenhouse's favor. That assumption of mine, I think, was correct, but they really only apply to this case. Um, it, a lot of the changes are going to have to happen on a sociocultural level. And now what this case does do is add to that bouquet of problems the fact that now a lot of people on the right will think that political extremists carrying guns are given this kind of deference. And again, even if they do that in New York, it doesn't matter if somebody's dead, um, if they ultimately get convicted and are wrong about this precedent applying there. So it does, you know, it nudges the attitude. But... The fact is that it's a it's the long game. It's about changing people's minds. It's a hearts and minds issue um, about guns, about 
women versus men, about black people versus white people, about um, all those demographic factors plus age plus political affiliation. So it's a person by person slow trudge. But I would say, yeah, pay attention to electorate issues, serve on juries, um, try to be patient with people who are learning because, you know, there's that whole, like, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, and I know it's hard, and I know it's a shitty burden as the people who know better to take the high road and to teach, but the fact is, it's true. Nobody's mind has ever been changed by being called an asshole. Um, so for whatever therapeutic value it gives you, which really, I speak from experience, is not that great, um, to call them an asshole, you feel good for two seconds, and then ultimately nothing changes. So just try to teach in a way that you think will actually resonate, because it really is desperate, and we do need to be effective. It's it's not about personal therapy when it's on this scale. I'm sorry if I suck. I love you. Mommy loves you. <laughs> um, not as much as Pig Boy's Pig Mom loves him, though. I don't know. There's probably other stuff to say, but I'm fucking done. All right, good night.